the world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and, and our, our daily, daily lives. This, this is, is Geotech Wars. Welcome back, everyone. We have today with us Dan Kim, who is the Chief Economist and Director of Strategic Planning and Industry Analysis for the CHIPS program at the Department of Commerce. I am thrilled to have you here with us, with me and Andrew today, Dan, because uh, not only you're serving in this really important timely role for our nation, which is, you know, all about the CHIPS program and semiconductors. But because of our personal history, I have known you, Dan, since we both worked together at Qualcomm in our uh, office of the chief economist. And then you went over to be SK Hynix's chief economist and then eventually at the Commerce Department. So it's such a real pleasure to have you back and discuss all things that you and I are both passionate about. So Andrew, this week, as you and I shared, we're going to talk about three main aspects. You know, what what's technology leadership? Why is it so important for the United States? What does it look like today? It's been, you know, an anniversary of the CHIPS Act. Where are we? And then, you know, where do we go from here? So over to you, Andrew. Thanks so much, Kirti. And Dan, welcome to our podcast Thank you for your service to the United States of America and for your expertise and sharing a little bit of your expertise with us today. I want to just first open up and say, you know, what is tech leadership? What is technology leadership and why is it so critical to the United States? Thank you so much for inviting me here in this uh, wonderful podcast. I'm a big fan. Um, I've listened to all the episodes and, and I've learned a lot from all your guests and I'm honored to be here. And Kurti, it's great to see you again and, and talk to you again, just like old times when we used to talk a lot about technology and, and, uh, and what it means for the economy. Andrew, to answer your question, technology leadership is incredibly important in the economy in which we live now and in the competitive dynamics of the world that we live in now. There are many dimensions of technology leadership. Some things in which the United States, if I could f- focus in on the semiconductor industry, does incredibly well, and some things that we have not done so well in recent history, despite the fact that semiconductors were invented here in the United States. The things that have not been a priority in the United States in recent history is the know-how in manufacturing. And we've lost leadership in that. And that is an incredibly important aspect that we are trying to address here at CHIPS program office. This is important because there's a lot of learning by doing. I think the idea of specializing in one aspect of technology and outsourcing the rest is now an outdated idea. And I think we're trying to address that. And and we could get into the whys and hows as we talk about it in this podcast. Dan, thank you for that. I want to ask, though, why is innovation and technology leadership so central to U.S. economic welfare and national security? Technology leadership is at the heart of our country's ability to compete in a global landscape now. Like I said, we do some things really, really well. I, I don't want to make an impression that we've lost all our way. In fact, I think we 
have done fantastically well in semiconductor design, software, and other aspects of semiconductors and technology leadership. But I think it's really important to remember that in order to have national security and economic security in this country, we need to have technology leadership, which includes know-how in both design and manufacturing. That will enable us to compete and to outcompete in a globally competitive world now. It's pretty incredible how technology has become national security. Kirti, I want to bring you into this. Let's talk a little bit, this is really your expertise, about how countries can cultivate technological leadership. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. And I appreciate this concern that the United States has lost some of its leadership in manufacturing, especially in semiconductors. But let's focus on how much we have gained. And it's important to focus on that, to answer your question, what do we keep doing to keep that leadership position? So the United States has been a leader in R&D and design and maintains that in semiconductors, by the way. And we have done that not only by public investments, but actually primarily since the Second World War, we have done it because of private investments. Our companies are leaders in the R&D capabilities, and that is what has led to the innovation ecosystem. Over 70% of the R&D spending and output comes from our companies. So in my mind, firm, the United States firm competitiveness or company level corporate competitiveness is national security and economic competitiveness for our nation. So to me, I think it's really important when we think of policy levers to think about ways in which we maintain a tight public-private partnership and continue to incentivize private investment in R&D. We are a market-based economy. That's our leadership competitive advantage. And we have to keep leveraging and strengthening that. And Dan, what do you think we need to do to cultivate leadership? I mean, this is really, I think, the the trillion-dollar question in the United States. We've always had a lot of tech leadership, but what do we need to do to stimulate it? I wonder if I could... Uh, in an indirect way of answering this question you're asking, Andrew, if I could share a few things that I wish I would have known going into this position that I hope will answer the bigger question you're asking, which is how do we maintain or get this leadership? First is that economies of scale is really important in innovation. And that's both at the end use market and also at the production side. There is just simply a lot of learning by doing. If you look at the market leaders today in high-volume manufacturing, it's incredibly difficult for companies that are trying to catch up to the leaders because the leaders have this high-volume manufacturing that enables them to learn improvements by just simply putting a lot of wafers through the process. And that is really difficult to replicate for a company that's trying to catch up and trying to gain customers to get that volume. And so there's there's this economies of scale that is really important, that is also very difficult to achieve as a follower. And I think that is an underappreciated aspect of technology leadership. Economies of scale really matters in production as well as in the end use markets. The second is, I think it's becoming really important now for companies that, uh, that Kurti is mentioning in both the design and the production aspect of it, to really understand 
what the customer needs. And that landscape of the customers, the mainstream customers, keep shifting when it comes to semiconductors. You know, at the beginning of the industry, it was very much vertically integrated. If you're making a system, like a defense system, or uh, mainframe computers, or computing systems of, of whatever kind, you were also making chips. And so if you look at old leaders in semiconductors, you get IBM, who was making lots of chips for its own systems, and lots of Japanese leaders that were making computers and making its own memory chips. But the competitive landscape changes as specialization occurs, and your customer sets change. And being able to provide a business model around that is really important, along with the technical capability that you can bring to the table. So I think that's also an underrated aspect of technology leadership. I'm fond of this statement that uh, I think I heard someone say, the customer is not looking for a quarter-inch drill. They're looking for a quarter-inch hole, right? <laughs> yeah. And if you think about what customers are now looking for semiconductors, it's not what it was 30 years ago. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. Your ability as a company and as a country, as an ecosystem, to generate that kind of trust and reliability as a service has to be paired with the technology superiority and competitive advantages to maintain that leadership. The third thing that I wish I would have learned more of you know, coming into this is that know-how really matters, right? I think once you have the economies of scale, what you get is a production cluster with people with the know-how to develop the next node of innovation that understand what the customers need, that understand where the technology trends are going, and that know-how, the people skills that you're building and the human capital you're building is so critical to technology leadership. I think it's very tempting for us, particularly in the CHIPS program, for us to look at and say, well, how many fabs are we building? How many factories are we supporting? But in some ways, we have to think about it as, what kind of teams of people with innovative capacity are we enabling to be staffed by these fabs? Do they have the know-how? Do they have the long-term trajectory to innovate in a competitive landscape that ultimately results in national security and economic security value? And I think we talk about that not enough. The last thing I'll say is economies of scale really matters, and that really goes to the high volume of things in, in semiconductors. But low volume also matters quite a lot when it comes to semiconductors, especially for national security and critical infrastructure needs. We're keenly aware here at CHIPS that as much as the competitive landscape can be measured in terms of wafer volume percentage share in a, in a given location, but I think it also matters where, whether you know how to produce small volumes of very critical chips that go, go into your defense systems, that go into your cars, that go into your medical devices, that go into your um, infrastructure at every level of sophistication, knowing how to do that here in the United States just makes your economy more resilient and robust over time. So I wish I would have understand that better. And I hope that um, as we start to announce um, investment decisions here and award decisions here, that people understand that we've been thinking about all of those aspects when it comes to technology leadership here. But the fact of the matter is, Dan, whether it's artificial intelligence, quantum compute, or semiconductors, we cannot do it all. No nation can do it all, <laughs> and you know this well. We are the leaders in design, R&D, EDA tools, electronic design equipment tools for semiconductors, and we maintain that leadership. And the fact of the matter is, we also live in a highly globalized world with intricate interdependent supply chains in almost every industry, frankly, semiconductors being a poster child of that. 
if we do it all, the cost of that will be trillion dollars and probably you and I as consumers won't be, you know, spending thousand dollars for our phone. We'll be spending 10 times that. So what is it that we should be focusing on? What's our laser focus? I don't think we should create an autarky of technology, right? I don't think we should be going for a complete self-sufficiency of technology. First of all, because it's impractical, as you've said, this is the most, one of the most globalized industries in the world where to make a chip, to design a chip and to make a chip, you have to cross several borders to make it. That supply chain complexity is often difficult to manage, especially in times of crisis, but it is the reality of it. And I like the way you're phrasing it, which is where do we focus then in that case, right? I think the way that I like to think about it here is do we have the know-how to be able to make critical semiconductor chips here at sufficient volume to be resilient here? I don't think that means for us to be completely self-reliant for the rest of the world. First of all, I think we have to we have to recognize that the companies that make these chips and sell it will need a global market to sell into to be competitive. This goes back to the economics of scale question is if you cut yourself off from the world, I don't think that's ideal. But at the same time, if you are completely dependent on different parts of the world for certain aspects of it and you have no know-how whatsoever and you happen to be in conflict with some of these locations, I think that is a dangerous place to be as well. So there is a balance to be struck between complete specialization that sometimes the market will lead you to versus a complete self-sufficiency. Insuring against all black swan events is a very expensive proposition, Kurti, as I'm sure you, you appreciate. And I don't think that's what we're going for here. I think we're going for technology leadership, diversification of production, and more resilient supply chains so that we do not experience the kind of crippling shortages that we experienced in the COVID crisis, and also reverse some of the worrying trends that we're seeing in terms of our technology leadership and know-how in manufacturing. It really is an opportunity to bolster American innovation, though, isn't it? I mean, this is a, a time, you know, we have this whole podcast about it, and people are talking about this in Washington just about every second of every day. It must be an incredibly exciting time for you to be working on these issues, Dan. It is very exciting. Uh, the most exciting part of it is the team of people that we get to work with here. We started with a handful of people. I was one of the first to join the team. I was very fortunate to be asked to join. And now there's about a, more than 140 people on the CHIPS team. And so we are now able to have specialization within the team, uh, healthy discussions, disagreements, agreements. We have more than 500 statements of interest for funding, uh, more than 120 pre and full applications that we're moving through the process. And so it forces us to look at the whole picture as much as we're honing down on individual applications and make sure that we're reviewing the merits of each individual application. We have to also zoom out a lot and say, what are we trying to accomplish here overall in, in the CHIPS program? And that's a very difficult but gratifying thing to do. We have to be both a mile wide and a mile deep to say, okay, what do we want to accomplish here? But in this particular technology for this company, what's the right thing to do? I don't think there's ever been a time or a team that was built like this to be nimble, but with sufficient expertise to move the way that we're moving. It's really exciting. Let's talk about the CHIPS Act for a minute. I know this is something Kirti thinks about a lot as well. Why was the CHIPS Act passed and what can we realistically expect from it? I think there was a recognition, a bipartisan recognition in Congress that the trends of manufacturing and semiconductors is not sustainable that there needed to be a reversal of our technology leadership in terms of production 
and our ability to produce across all spectrum of manufacturing to make sure that we have national security and economic security necessary in the United States. That's a broad statement in terms of how to measure that, I think is, is a different question. What can we expect from it? You know, we, we worked really hard to um, conceptualize and publish our vision for success paper for our first notice of funding in which we clearly stated out what we are going for in terms of leading edge logic manufacturing, in terms of memory production, in terms of production of matured node technologies, advanced packaging, and our know-how. And I think if we were, if we could look back at each of those milestones and goals that we set in that paper, I think we'll be in a good place. So, Dan, $52 billion, $52.7 billion for the CHIPS Act over multiple years. <laughs> and $39 billion is earmarked for manufacturing and, you know, rest for other kinds of activities like R&D, workforce issues, etc. Not jump change. Except that it might be, Andrew, you know, compare this to the annual operating cost of TSMC, the largest Taiwanese foundry company. They spend around $100 billion a year on operating cost. And we're talking about $39 billion over X number of years. So I just want to drive your question home about what can we realistically expect and how does your team handle that kind of resource question, Dan? That's a really good question. I think we as CHIPS team actually have very high expectation as to what we can accomplish with the funds that Congress has given us to work with. I agree with you, though, that this is an incredibly capital-intensive industry in which $39 billion, even let's say if it's one year and $39 billion, does not equal to the total capital expenditures that is spent by this industry. If you actually add up capital expenditures by, say, the top six companies in this industry, it would exceed that of $39 billion. So given that, what can we realistically accomplish? I think is a fair question. So there's a couple of things I would say. One is we often forget that there is an investment tax credit that was passed along with CHIPS that enables companies that are investing in manufacturing facilities to receive 25% refundable tax credit as part of their building out for eligible expenses here. That is a significant amount of funding that does not tap into the $39 billion of incentives we have here. That is often um, overlooked and, uh, and just wanted to mention that here. And secondly, $39 billion might not seem a lot, but I am actually very encouraged by the level of interest that we've had in the CHIPS program and the level of investments that have already taken place in anticipation of CHIPS. There is really interesting data by a firm that stated that um, student applications for full-time jobs for semiconductor companies were up by 80% within the last year compared to about 20% in other industries. So there's already a response by the industry to build out more in the United States. We're seeing clusters being formulated in different locations of the United States. And so I, I share the sentiment that this in comparison to what the uh, industry spends on an annual basis may not seem a lot, but the amount of investments that we already see is encouraging and the amount of interest that we see is also encouraging. But let me get to the real point that I think you want to try to make here that I agree with is that this is not going to be successful unless we're able to crowd in private capital, right? This is not a government problem alone to solve, that it has to be solved with companies in the semiconductor space, both producers and customers, 
to be able to, and, and the finance industry, to crowd in the private capital to make this a more resilient ecosystem. And I think then and only then we can be successful. So this brings me to the question, do you think we're going to need another CHIPS Act five years from now? Let me, I think I'll rephrase it another way. I think if we do our job right and catalyzing private investments and really fortifying our production base here in the United States, we will have made the case that a second CHIPS Act, whenever that might be, will be worthy of consideration, right? That makes a lot of sense. If we go through this process and we come out the other end of it and nobody sees the need for more, then in some ways I think we may not have done our job right. I think what we will want is for the world to see what we've accomplished with the capital that we have, with the crowding of in, uh, private capital that we've been able to accomplish, with the landscape change that we've been able to accomplish as we look back five, 10 years from now and say, you know what, let's do it again. And then maybe not even do it again, only in the semiconductor space, but in other spaces too, where we see resiliency needs to be built in, right? So no pressure, of course, but <laughs> I, I'm hopeful that this could be a template for other industrial policy considerations to come. There's going to be growing pains for us in terms of what works, what doesn't. It's not going to be a perfectly executed program. No program is in government. But I think we'll get a lot of things right, and I'm really excited about the uh, prospect of it. Quickly, Dan, um, so let's talk about a little bit more under the hood in the CHIPS Act. So $52.7 billion, we talked about you know, where the United States can lead and where should our laser focus be in building what's, let's call it, my term, minimum viable resiliency, right? Because we can't do it all. One of the things we are focusing so much on is cutting edge, leading no chips. That's where a lot of concentration is in Taiwan. There's a lot of concern because, you know, most of those chips are produced there and South Korea. But what about legacy chips? So let's, uh, you know, translate that for our listeners. Leading node chips are cutting edge, high-end chips with very small diameters, 10 nanometer and below sometimes. And legacy nodes are older, more mature node technologies, but they're the ones that are serve a majority in a number of products that, you know, you and I and others care about, like automobiles and even our military systems. And out of the 52.27 billion Two is earmarked for legacy. Is that focus enough in your mind? And how do you deal with that? To be clear, the $2 billion has been dedicated for a matured note production is the statutory requirement for us to spend a minimum amount. So it is not, is not considered as a ceiling, but I think it's, it's the floor. You know, we engage with a variety of sets of customers of chips. And what we mean by that is customers that require the very latest leading edge node technologies to enable their systems and have competitive advantage in their own spheres of products. We also engage with industries and companies for which it is really the legacy node that is the choke point for them and have the most resiliency concerns. What we hear today is that while some of the pain points during the pandemic has been resolved, the underlying resiliency issues with legacy and mature technologies has not been resolved and needs more attention. And so when I say we need to have the know-how, I mean across technology spectrums. We need to have the know-how for the very leading edge, which is a very specialized type of production, the very specialized know-how, but there's also complications and specialized know-how for legacy production as well. 
I'd also mention that legacy production faces another challenge in which, let's say, 28 nanometer logic production, which is um, generally considered the, sort of the last node for planar technology before the industry moved into more of a FinFET type of technology uh, for transistor architecture. That is still very much in, in demand today. That is considered more mature. But at one point, it was the leading edge. But what has happened over time is as the cost of that manufacturing goes down and as new nodes get introduced, that node was then adopted into a more wider usage into different applications. The practical effect of that is wherever the leading edge was being produced at the time that was serving a foundry need, now, after years later, has the matured node technology production capability. So it didn't start off as if they were building immature node technology at the time, they were building the leading edge, but then over time it becomes lagging edge, over time it becomes mature node, and then all of a sudden they're serving a much wider set of customers. To introduce new greenfield to new uh, production is not as straightforward because now then you're competing against fully depreciated factories in locations and where they perfected the technology over time. So the competitive landscape there is not easy. And there are barriers to entry there that I think can be underappreciated from time to time. At the same time, it doesn't diminish the fact that many systems and many industries still need those chips. And we see resiliency needs there. It is a problem that we are continually looking into how we can solve. And we're not just looking at the leading edge. We're looking at chips needs across the spectrum and doing our best to address them. Dan, I want to ask you before we go, and you mentioned this a few minutes ago, talking about students. How do we get more students, engineers, and other workers interested in semiconductors in the United States? I think there's some wonderful programs that are happening around the country already that is very encouraging, especially around the hubs of new clusters that are being created in places like Arizona and Texas and New York. If I could just share a quick story with you, I think it sort of changed my perspective about the need for education. I always thought of it as, you know, if we could just reform our education system so that more students would be interested in semiconductors and therefore plug into that system. I was visiting a tech city, essentially, in Vietnam, where it had become a hub of back-end manufacturing, the packaging side of semiconductors. And there was a lot of hub of activities going on there. It was mainly leveraging low cost of labor there and efficient uh, port systems there that has been created since. I was visiting with a smaller, like a medium-sized company that was doing some specialized packaging. And we had some questions there. And then the CEO there sort of paused me and said he had some questions of his own. And one question really stood out to me. He said, I'm really interested in the reverse Fulbright program that you have going at the State Department. You know, usually the Fulbright program, you take American students and you help them be placed into foreign locations and have them get experience internationally. The reverse Fulbright here, that was a pilot program there, was essentially having Vietnamese students go to the United States and get experience in the United States, learn the language, and be educated there. The CEO said, if I could get access to a list of students that actually participated in the reverse Fulbright, and this is the interesting part for me, he said, I don't care what they studied. I could teach them the engineering. I just need them to have some English skills and curiosity enough to participate in a global industry. I could teach them the engineering and I have resources to do that. And that made me pause and sort of made me rethink as an economist as to how the labor dynamics actually work. Here we have a situation in which the industry went there and then the labor pool followed. Sometimes we think of it as if you create the labor pool, then the industry will follow. It works both ways, I think. 
And I was just thinking about this concept and I walked out of the meeting and I look across the street in the middle of Vietnam with all the Vietnamese signs. There was one English sign in, in this building and it said Arizona State University. And so I was really curious about that. And so I looked up what, what programs they have in that program at that location. And it was very short term, everything you need to know to participate in that ecosystem for engineering that you can get a certificate within days or weeks. And it was very custom made to the workforce needs that existed at the time. So it gave me some fresher perspective as to, first of all, the importance of creating the right workforce for us to succeed here. Nothing can succeed without the right workforce, but also the need to have a production base so that there is a flowing in of labor training programs and workers to go into it. At the end of the day, one measure of success that we'll really need to have is, did we create a worker base that knows how to innovate and how to produce, right? In addition to the factories that we'll be supporting. So just wanted to echo what you were saying there, Andrew. I think it's incredibly important and there is good work being placed there. And the workforce development is a specific part of the notice of funding that we put out uh, for the companies to give us their plans to do that. And we're working very closely with the companies to make sure that it's a robust aspect of the application. Yeah, and this is where, you know, public-private partnership really helps. And these clusters give me a lot of hope, Dan. My personal story I'd like to share is, you know, when I was graduating from graduate school in electrical engineering, my professor said, well, if you're interested in wireless, you go to San Diego, you go to Qualcomm. That's where the wireless ecosystem is. So there are, you know, naturally some cities that create, you know, clusters or, or ecosystems of certain kinds of tech, like biotech or wireless or software in the Bay Area, uh, if we have these clusters and semiconductors, we are likely to see, you know, graduate schools there, engineering schools there producing high-end talent that will naturally flow into these industries. That's exactly right. And my experience with the company that was based in South Korea, one of the motivators to consider building in the United States was to tap into really good engineering talent that is being produced by PhD programs in the United States and the research programs that are happening across universities here. So I think this sort of brings us full circle, which is there are clear strengths in the U.S. ecosystem in R&D and design, some manufacturing. There are some weaknesses, some things that have atrophied. And I think we have to make sure that we are leveraging the strengths, maintaining leadership in aspects where we need to maintain them. Turns out it's much easier to maintain leadership than try to get it back. <laughs> and also making sure that we have a resilient supply and production base and have that be a reinforcing ecosystem where the strengths and weaknesses address each other. And the United States can be the premier place in which you can do design, production, develop your workforce and do unique things here. And I'm confident that we can do that. Dan, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And we Really appreciate your expertise and perspective that you bring to this. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts.